Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Last week, we finished the book of Ezra. And so we never really did go through Zechariah. And of course, Zechariah and Haggai were both prophesying during the time period that is covered by the book of Ezra. So we read through Haggai, but we didn't read through Zechariah. And at the end of Ezra, I said, well, Nehemiah just kind of picks up right there and carries on the story. So last week I said, we'll do Nehemiah next. So I've been plagued all this week trying to figure out, do we do Nehemiah next or do we do Zechariah next? And I could make the case for either one of them, considering what we've said and taught so far and where we're at. So uh, you're probably anxious to know what the decision is. Is it going to be Nehemiah? Is it going to be Zechariah? The answer is uh, both. Yeah, we're going to do a little bit of both tonight. And then we'll mix a little bit of Zechariah into our teaching on Nehemiah. Because by the time we get to mid-Nehemiah, we're also getting into the time of Malachi by then. And you can really only understand those prophets as you put them into the context of Israel coming back, Judah in particular, coming back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the walls and stuff because the prophecies that they put forward have to do particularly with that, except that Zechariah also launches into several eschatological things where he starts stretching from the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple all the way out to the promise of Messiah coming And then ultimately Messiah's return and his feet touching the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives cleaving in half. So he even waxes eschatological. So Zechariah goes much further than Haggai does. But tonight I just thought that we would do the first two chapters of Zechariah and then go take a look at the beginning of Nehemiah so that you can get some sense of the sort of transition from Ezra to Nehemiah. As I told you before, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book. Over the course of time, they became known as first and second Ezra. Then eventually in the earliest English Bibles, you started seeing Nehemiah and Ezra instead of first and second Ezra. So they are in league with each other and are meant to be read one after the other, but we're going to interrupt it with a little bit of Zechariah here because this is the time frame. So turn to the book of Zechariah, and we are going to start right at chapter 1, verse 1. Let me introduce it to absolutely nobody's surprise. We know when Zechariah is saying these things. He's saying the things he's saying here in order to inspire the work on the temple, which had begun, was going well, and then stopped. And then God sent Haggai and Zechariah to encourage the people that God was actually in this. And so then they stirred up their strength and resolved to go back to the work of building the temple. 
but they hadn't really started on the walls so that Jerusalem still stood unprotected and it still laid in ruins, which allowed the surrounding nations to say, well, even if they rebuild their temple and worship their God, they're still going to have to be subject to us because we can attack them at any point. And that's what the book of Nehemiah is about. Nehemiah doesn't go from Medo-Persia to Jerusalem in order to inspire the building of the temple. The temple is built at the end of the book of Ezra. He then is going to say, let's rebuild the walls. Let's rebuild Jerusalem. And that is going to cause even more tension there in the surrounding areas because the enemies have been occupying that land while the Israelites, while the folks of Jerusalem, while the Judahites were in the Medo-Persian captivity. So for 70 years, they've been taking over that land. And now here come the Israelites back, and they're rebuilding their temple, and they're going to start rebuilding their walls, and Jerusalem is going to come back into existence, and that's going to be a real thorn in the side of the enemies who live in that area. And by the way, it is still a thorn in the side of people in that area who just don't like the fact that Jerusalem still exists. So Zechariah, Zechariah is going to tell the folks not only should you be rebuilding the temple, but God has said things to you the same way God has said things to your fathers. The beginning chapter of Zechariah is God saying, I have spoken my word lasts forever, and these words were spoken to your fathers by the prophets. Now, where are your fathers? Well, they're dead. And where are those prophets? Well, they're dead. But what have you gone through? You've gone through the culmination of what I promised to do if your fathers rebelled. And your fathers did rebel, and I did take you through these 70 years of punishment because my word stands true regardless of how many people come and go. Even though the planet has been full of people, since Adam and Eve, millions of people have come and gone. And every single one of them had an opinion. In fact, every single one of them had lots of opinions. And then God reveals to the Israelites what he thinks about stuff and says, this is what I expect out of you. And they turned away from what he said because they preferred their opinions. They preferred their traditions. They preferred to do what they wanted to do. So God is going to give them this object lesson of saying, I put my word out there. I told your fathers what I expected of them. They then rebelled because they preferred to go their way and do their thoughts and do their things. But you'll notice that my word came true anyway. And they're dead. They're not even here. But my word came true, which is why even as we read into the New Testament, Jesus can say things like heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away because the word of God stands true regardless of what anybody thinks about it and regardless of what people come and go. Because people will come and look at the word and then bend it and pervert it and reshape it or deny it. But it's still the word of God. And it still exists and it's still accurate and it still continues. And even as, at this very moment, even as we see people sort of en masse denying the Bible, 
denying the word of God, we nevertheless see the planet going the exact direction that the word of God said it was going to go. So as people continue to say, I don't need the Bible, or I don't listen to the Bible, I don't need Christianity, I don't need your religion, I don't need to adhere to a book that somebody wrote 2,000 years ago. Nevertheless, human beings keep showing up and dying, but God's word keeps being proven true through human history, even up to our day right now. Tom and I were just talking before church started tonight about how racial tensions have been building here in the United States and around the world. And that you would think that people would just get used to living with each other. You would think that we would just at some point all agree, well, hey, we're all here. (laughs) And so, you know, let's just take care of each other. We're all just human. We all share the same blood. Let's just get along. But racial tensions are happening because the Bible says when Jesus in Matthew 24 was talking about the birth pangs that were going to come on the planet, building up to the end, though the end is not yet, when he talked about famines and floods and earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, one of the things that he pointed out was that there's going to be brother against brother is what the King James says. But the word is ethnos against ethnos. It's cultural ethnic group against cultural ethnic group. And you're going to see that increasing as time goes by. Do we see that? We see that increasing now as time goes by. Oh, gee, just sort of like Jesus said. So then that would prove that the things he said are actually true, regardless of how many people have come and gone and said, I don't agree. I don't believe it. I don't need that book. It's just a crutch that some weak need people need. There have been all kinds of excuses that human beings have given for why they don't believe the Bible, and yet the Bible continues to prove itself because it is the Word of God. And here you're going to see God say that very thing. He's going to say, I told your fathers what to do. Where are they now? But my word's still true because of what you just went through. So it's proof. Then the second chapter of Zechariah is going to be one of those Examples, again, of God's absolute sovereignty over the affairs of human beings on the planet. Several times we have seen God use nations in order to punish Israel. But then after that punishment period is over, God punishes the nations that he used to punish Israel for the fact that they punished God's chosen people kind of hard to imagine that a God could be so sovereign that he could actually use nations like Assyria. You can read about it in Isaiah 10. You can go back and read about God punishing Assyria, even though God said, I'm going to use Assyria to punish Israel, the northern tribes. And so sure enough, that happened. And then God punished them for the haughtiness with which they punished Israel. So here again, we're going to see that. God's going to send out observers, watchers, on horseback, on four different color horses. The same four horsemen on the same four colors that we see arrive in the book of Revelation. But they're just out right now patrolling. They're just seeing what's going on on the planet. And God's going to ask them, so what's going on? 
the angels are going to say, well, the, the nations are quiet right now. Everybody's at peace. And you would think that God would go, oh, good. God gets mad at them. And you know why he's mad at them? Because during the time that God was punishing his people, those nations took advantage of the fact that God was punishing his people. They then made it even worse for the people of Israel while God was punishing them. So then God is going to defend his people Israel and be angry at the nations that are now resting in peace after they have made it worse for Israel. Wow, mind-boggling. But it's exactly what we're about to read. So let's start reading at Zechariah 1, chapter 1, verse 1, word 1. That word is in. There we go. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, or Darius, that's the Medo-Persian king. Darius the Mede, Cyrus the Persian. They rose up in power successive to each other. The Medes and the Persians ruled over the Medo-Persian Empire. And during the time of Darius is during the time that the temple is being rebuilt. And then it stops. And so Zechariah has come to the people in, in Judah and is encouraging them to rebuild the temple. And his encouragement begins by saying, look at what you've been through. God knows what he's doing God's word remains, and God's telling you to build this temple. Just do it. So in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. So this is what Zechariah is telling them. Zechariah goes to Judah. The temple is not finished. The temple work has stopped. And Zechariah says, you know, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. So therefore, say to them, say to the people alive during the temple building, say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, he uses that phrase, Lord of hosts, a couple of times because it's a particular nomenclature to say this is the God who is in control of everyone. Heaven, hell, and earth, he's in charge of the armies of heaven and all the inhabitants of the earth and all the denizens of hell. He's in charge of that. Have you ever heard the word sabaoth? It's that same word. It's that Hebrew word that is best rendered as the Lord of the armies, the Lord of the hosts. We used to say a creed as I was growing up as a young Lutheran boy where we would speak of the Lord of the Sabbath. And I just always thought that meant Lord of the Sabbath and we were just pronouncing it weirdly. Just as a group, we're just all going to say Sabbath as Sabbath because we're Lutherans or something. But what it means is the God who's in charge of everything. So God calls himself that continuously in order to say, since I'm in charge of everything, trust me when I tell you my word, because my word remains regardless of everyone, because I'm in charge of everyone. So therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers. 
to whom the former prophets, the ones that are already gone, the ones of history, they proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways. Okay, that gives us a good sense of what he means by return to me. What he's saying to them is, you're intermarrying, which I've told you not to do. You're not following my law and my statutes, which I told you to do. Return to me by stopping your evil ways. That's the way that they're to return to God. I've told you so many times that the word repentance basically means turning 180 degrees from this direction to this direction. Turn from what you're doing right now to God's way of doing things. And so basically he's calling on them to repent. Repent of your former behavior. Go back to what you know. Go back to what I've told you. Turn back to me. And that's what the prophets have always been saying to Israel. The former prophets, the current prophet, keep saying, return to me. You've left me. Return to me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. So your fathers, where are they? That's a rhetorical question. Because the answer is dead. That's where they are. And the prophets, do they live forever? Now you know that he was getting at they're dead. Because he says nobody lives forever. Prophets don't live forever. Your fathers don't live forever. But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Even though they ignored my word, even though they thought I didn't mean it, did they or didn't they end up in bondage? The answer is yes. And why did they end up in bondage, God says? Because I told them they would. I've told them from the beginning at Mount Sinai, when I gave them my law, I said, do it, I'll bless you. Don't do it. I'll disperse you. I'll curse you. I'll curse your land. So do it. And God has been, ever since then, keeping track of Israel's relation to that law. Are they actually doing it? Are they actually following his commands? And when they don't do it, he has done exactly what he said he was going to do. His word was, I'll curse you, I'll scatter you. They didn't do it. He cursed them. He scattered them. Now he's appealing to that, that fact of life, to be able to say, see, they didn't do it. And I did exactly what I said I was going to do. Why? Because they're nothing, they die, I'm Lord of hosts, my word lasts forever. That's just the way it works out. But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. In other words, the fathers had to say once they were in the Babylonian captivity and then in captivity under the Medes and the Persians, they had to admit, well, how did this happen? This happened because God said it was going to happen. So even though they denied the word of God, the word of God was imposed on them anyway. Shall we extrapolate for just a moment? 
Uh, even though human beings may say, I don't care about that Bible thing, and I don't care about God, and uh, Jesus who needs that stuff, and no man's going to control me. I'm a master of my own fate, master of my own destiny, self-made man. I'll go my own way. I'll do my own thing. Do you think when they wind up under God's judgment and in that whole outer darkness thing, do you think they'll have an opportunity to kind of look back and go, oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Oh, yeah, I did reject you completely. Because at some point, the absolute word of an absolute God, who is the Lord of hosts, is going to make sure that his word comes true and is imposed on all the enemies of his word. They're going to become aware of his word. When they stand in front of his glory and they hear, depart from me, I never knew you, they're going to realize that his word is more true than their opinion. Every knee will bow. Every Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Things on the earth, things above the earth, things below the earth. Everybody's going to confess it. So then, now it gets even more mysterious. After God has sort of pled his case, after God has laid out the reality that you went through these 70 years of bondage because my word is true, he then says, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shebat, on the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, as follows. I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees which were in the ravine with red and sorrel and white horses behind him. Then I said, my Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. Okay, so these are apparently like watchers of some sort. They're angelic beings on horseback who just happen to be riding the same color horses as we find in the book of Revelation. And they're just patrolling the earth and seeing what's going on. So they answered the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou have no compassion for Jerusalem? And the cities of Judah, with which thou hast been indignant for these 70 years. Okay, now it's starting to tie in to the very time period we're talking about. They're rebuilding the temple. Jerusalem is in ruins. The walls knocked down. Whole portions of the city have been wrecked by fire and the walls are knocked over. And so now the angelic watchers are asking God, how long is it going to be? The 70 years are up now. How long are you going to have no compassion for Judah and for Jerusalem? Verse 13, and the Lord answered the angel that was speaking to me with gracious words, comforting words, 
So the angel who was speaking to me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. Hold on, wait a minute. Because the angels tell God we've been patrolling, everything's peaceful and calm, and everybody's at ease. And you would think God would go, good, everybody's at peace. And God says, I'm angry at the nations that are at peace. Now listen to his reason why. I am very angry at the nations who are at ease, for while I was only a little angry in taking Judah out of Jerusalem, taking them into the Babylonian captivity, but limiting it to 70 years, then rebuilding Judah. So God was saying, I was a little angry, but it wasn't outright anger. We're not going to see that until the final day of the Lord, the tribulation, a time of trouble and stress such as never was on the planet. No, never will be again. Then you're going to see the real angry God show up. But he says, I, I was a little angry with them. But they, the nations that are now at ease, they furthered the disaster. How did they further the disaster? Well, as God took his people out of the land for 70 years, those people came to occupy the land. And now that the temple's being rebuilt, they are resisting that. And as we saw in the book of Ezra, they were writing letters and trying to stop the building and trying to stop the rebuilding of Jerusalem. We're going to see that in the book of Nehemiah. We're going to see that once he starts encouraging the people to rebuild the walls, then the opposition's really going to get crazy. To the point where Israel starts having to build walls with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. Building and fighting, building and fighting, trying to rebuild Jerusalem. So these nations that are basically at peace at this moment, God is saying, yeah, but they've made everything worse for the people that I was punishing myself. I was taking care of the punishment part. They were making it worse. Let's see if I can give you an example. My son is too old and too big to spank now. Thank heavens. Yeah. But there was a time when he was small enough that, that I could get a hold of that guy. And if he acted up, I could correct him. If I wanted to put him in his room, he went to his room. If I made him sit in the corner, he sat in the corner. And that's just the way it was because I was in charge. I punish my son. Okay, none of you would have any problem with that. I correct my son. I'm a good parent. I guide my son. I take care of my son. And you would all say, what a good parent. He is correcting his son. But what if Jeff tried to correct my son? All of a sudden, I think we would all kind of go, wait a minute, Jeff. You're kind of overstepping your bounds right there. That's not your son. That's Jim's son. He'll take care of it. That's what God's getting at. He's saying, I was a little angry at them, and I was punishing them. But then these nations started punishing them too, and still are at this very moment. Don't, as Zechariah is prophesying, don't forget who Zechariah is talking to and why. They've been rebuilding the temple, and then because of the opposition, they stopped for a long time. So Zacharias coming to them and saying, 
God understands that the surrounding nations are making it bad for you. But God is going to take care of that. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will recompense. God is going to punish those nations for making it hard on you. Now get back to work. Get back to building. And trust God. He knows what he's doing. By the way, one more application, if I may. If we really believe that, if we really honestly believe that vengeance belongs to God and that he's got it and that he protects his own, and if we know if God be for us, who can be against us? If we actually believe that, really, should we be all that upset and angry and self-justifying and argumentative when the people of this world give us a hard time? Because we, we know they're going to. So should we then get our backs up? Should we get defensive? Should we start fighting back? Should we start arguing our case? Should we start saying, yeah, well, hey, me, how dare you? And I'm offended. No, the truth is God's got it. God has always had it. And God will take care of his own. Just rest in that. Trust him. He'll take care of it. So here's what God says. But I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. That line right there, a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem, is separate from the temple. My temple's going to be built. So even though it's laying partially built right now, God's declaring it is going to be finished. By the end of the book of Ezra, it is finished. But then God says this, a measuring line is going to be stretched over Jerusalem as a whole. A measuring line is a way of rebuilding, a way of figuring out what a straight line is and where walls need to be built. Well, that's the beginning of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So that verse right there kind of ties Ezra and Nehemiah together. Verse 17, again proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Then I lifted up my eyes, and I looked, and behold, there were four horns, Now, if you know anything about Daniel, for instance, you'll know that horns represent world powers. It can be a nation. It can be a leader of the nation, like it can be Babylon or it can be Nebuchadnezzar sometimes. The Antichrist to come, according to Daniel, he refers to him as the little horn because there were a series of horns and then there was a smaller horn that then rises up in power and stuff. So this language of horns is consistently powers. But watch how specific this is. I lifted up my eyes and I looked and behold, there were four horns. So I said to the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? And he answered me, these are the four horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Okay, so who would that be? Who were the four world powers that would be responsible for doing that? Now, some people will tell you it starts at Egypt. Some folks will say it's Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia. 
I don't know if Egypt is really responsible for scattering. But if that's the case, and if Medo-Persia, as I mentioned earlier, the Medes would rise up, then the Persians would rise up, the Medes would take responsibility, and then the Persians would take responsibility. Looking at the history of Medo-Persia, I think the four horns he's referring to right here don't start at Egypt. They start immediately after that with Assyria, who scattered Israel, and then after that, Babylon, and then after that, Media, after that, Persia. Sure enough, four world powers that are responsible for scattering Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. Okay, let's talk about this for one more second. Who ultimately is responsible for scattering Israel? God, and he says it every time. He takes responsibility for it. I did that to you, and I'm going to draw you again. I'm going to bring you back to your land from all the places I scattered you. So God says, I'm responsible for the scattering, but look at what he does here. These are the four horns that have scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem, and then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns which have scattered Judah so that no man lifts up his head. In other words, they brought Judah to shame so that they kept their heads down. But these craftsmen, these other characters, have come to terrify them, to terrify the horns. For what reason? To throw them down, to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. Oh my goodness, my head's ready to explode. I'm going to have to duct tape my head closed in a moment. So God is saying, these nations are responsible for scattering Israel. Then God says, I'm responsible for scattering Israel. And then God says, but these horns also scattered Israel, and so I'm going to punish these horns. I'm going to send people to throw down these powers because they scattered Israel and Judah, and they're my people, and I protect my people. So since I'm busy protecting my people against those horns that rose up against them, the very fact that they rose up against them, I'm going to punish them for that. That's absolute, complete, utter sovereignty. But it also fits with human history because has anybody lately... Seen anyone from Medo-Persia? Anybody met a Babylonian? Anybody found an Assyrian lately? Now, the nation, the area of the Middle East that was the Assyrian Empire has been broken up into several different nations, and one of those has the name Syria. It just kind of moved historically through it. But the kingdom of Assyria, the, the absolute authority and power of Assyria, gone Gone, doesn't exist anymore. Babylon? Gone. Wiped out. God even said it's never going to be rebuilt. Gone. We hear about it. We hear about the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Gone. Just gone. Why? Because God threw it down. It's gone. The Medo-Persian Empire, well, the, the Medes have been intermingled into all sorts of Middle Eastern people, and even Persia these days is Iran. So they've even lost that ancient name. So is it true historically what the word of God says? God said, I'm going to throw them all down. I'm going to destroy them. I am sending 
The translation here, craftsmen, it just means men of cleverness who know how to build and tear down stuff. And God is sending them in for the purpose of terrifying them to throw down those nations who have lifted up their power, their horns, against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. God did absolutely that. What does that prove to you? It proves the same thing God said at the beginning of the chapter. God said, my word proves itself because my word doesn't change because human beings come and go. But if you look at the history of what happened on the planet, it turns out to be exactly what I said. And because it turns out to be exactly what I said, I'm contending. This is not God speaking now. This is me speaking. Because it has absolutely happened, I contend that that is evidence yet again of the Bible's trustworthiness. If the Bible says things, it happens. And you see that demonstrated time and time again. And I love to point these things out because it ought to give us reassurance and build up our faith, build up our confidence that when we're reading the Bible, we're reading the very word of God. And, and I don't ask anybody to just take that on faith. I ask people to look at the fact that it says these things and then those things happen. That's real life. That's why the Bible includes prophecy, so that God can demonstrate that he is, in fact, the Lord of hosts. I've used the phrase frequently. Several of you could probably recite it for me. But I keep saying prophecy only works if the future is definite. And the future is definite, and therefore, prophecy is working. And we can look, as I said a half hour ago, we can look at the planet right now the geopolitics of the planet right now. Where's the next place for World War III likely to break out? The Middle East. Gee, why? Because of Jerusalem. That's not a mistake. People aren't threatening to push South America or Venezuela into the sea. But the ancient enemies of Israel continue to use that verbiage that we're going to destroy Jerusalem. Why? Because they're just as much the people of God as they ever were. And because the people of the Middle East continue to hate the very fact that the existence of Jerusalem proves the word of God is true and that their God isn't. And they don't like that. In fact, they don't like it so much that if you say their God is a false God, they will threaten to kill you for it. All right, so turn to Nehemiah. That was all introduction to Nehemiah. That was just getting you ready for Nehemiah. Turn back to Nehemiah right after the book of Ezra. Nehemiah, anybody know what that name means? It's a great name. Consolation of the Lord. Yeah, the consolation of the Lord or Jehovah comforts. Anything like that. It just means that God is is a comforting God. And I like that. I like a God who is both holy and just and also comforting to his people. So the book of Nehemiah starts with Nehemiah, who is a cupbearer to the king. They just tell us that and move on. I think that's exceptionally providential. Gee, the, the very one who's going to become the governor of Jerusalem, who's going to rebuild the walls, also just happens to have direct access to the king of Persia. That was lucky. How'd that work out? How did God manage 
just like he managed to get Esther all the way to the king's palace and to be the wife of the king, how did he manage to make sure that a Jewish slave became cupbearer to the king? That was a really trusted position because what the cupbearer did was he always drank whatever was going to the king before it got to the king to make sure it wasn't poisoned. So if the cupbearer died, don't give it to the king. So the cupbearer, once he has the king's cup and the king's drink in his hand, he drinks it and then he holds it so that nobody else can get to it. He's protecting it and he stands there and waits to see if he dies. Trusted position. <laughs> if he's okay, if he feels good after a couple minutes, he brings that drink to the king. Now this gives him access, direct access to the most powerful man on the planet. So here are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekiah. Now it happened in the month Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, in the capital, that Hanani, one of the brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity, I asked them about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now it came about when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open to hear the prayer of thy servant, which I am praying before thee now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, thy servants." confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which thou didst command thy servant Moses. Remember thy word, which thou didst command thy servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. There it is right there. God's responsible for the scattering, even though he punished the nations that are responsible for scattering. But you also said, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were even in the most remote part of heaven, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I've chosen to cause my name to dwell. So in other words, once God has scattered them, part of that promise was, if you return to me, I'll regather you. And it doesn't matter how far away you went. No matter where under heaven you happen to be, if you're on the other side of the planet, God says, I'll find you, I'll bring you back. Now you get that sense of return to me, return to me, and I'll return to you. So he confesses the sin of Israel and says, just remember your word. By the way, very good way to pray to God. Pray his word back to him. Find the promises of God, take them to God. 
pray his word. Just remember, God, you said this. That's what Daniel did. Daniel went to God and said, you said that this captivity would be 70 years. You said it through the prophet Jeremiah. I'm just asking you to do what you said you were going to do. I like to pray that way. I like to go to him and say, you said you're going to give your son a people. You promised that you were going to redeem a people to give to your son. Just do what you said you're going to do. Just include me in that group. <laughs> Remember the word which you did command your servant Moses, saying... If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of the heavens, I will gather you from there and bring you to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. And they are thy servants and thy people, whom thou didst redeem by thy great and mighty hand by your great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, may thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and the prayer of thy servants who delight to revere thy name and make thy servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. He just kind of throws that away so that you understand what the situation is. So he's about to go before the king. He's going to request something of the king. Before he does it, he prays to God. Give me success when I go before the king. And how does he pray to God? I know I don't deserve anything from you. I'm resting solely and completely on you and your promise. I'm sinful. My fathers are sinful. My whole household is sinful. I don't deserve the least thing from you, but I have your word. I have your promise. Therefore, based on your own consistency to yourself, based on your own commitment to your own word and your faithfulness to what you've said, therefore, cause your people to return to you. Draw them back to you. Bring us back to the land. Do what you said you're going to do and give me success when I go talk to the king so that we can go back and rebuild Jerusalem, which you said. It's a great prayer. So chapter 2, I'm just going to read real fast and we'll be done for the night. Because it is mostly narrative. Yeah, we can do it. Come on, we can do it. Okay. Sandy gave me a very positive head nod right there. The rest of you kind of cowered. But we, we can do it. And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. In other words, I had never looked forlorn when I was around the king. But this time I was. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And then I was very much afraid, because after all, he is the king. So the next few words out of your mouth matter. Because if the king doesn't like what you said, off with your head, new cupbearer. So now the king has addressed me directly. Why are you sad? I was scared. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, 
What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Wow. <laughs> the king says, what's your request? He goes back to God. He goes back and prays to God. The king has just given me grace. The king has just given me the opportunity to tell him what I want. And before he does it, he goes back to God again. The king said, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, I mean, considering that every time you want something to drink, I risk death. You know, if that finds favor with you, then send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time. This is how long it's going to take me to go there, get it done, and I'll be back. Because after all, a good cupbearer who's willing to die for you is hard to find. So the king's like, yeah, you can go. When are you coming back? You're going to be a tough one to replace. So I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. Notice again, a good thing happened to me. A really good thing happened to me. The king agreed completely with everything I said. The king is going to give me not only safe passage all the way back to Judah, but he's going to give me a letter to Asaph so that the forests that belong to the king are going to be used for the timber to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and rebuild the gates and rebuild the house. And it's all going to be done at the king's expense. And the king is really, really being good to me. And he doesn't leave history with, and thank goodness for that king. Man, we like Artaxerxes. Antarxerxes, he's our guy. I couldn't even say it. You try it. You laugh at me. Artaxerxes, he's our guy. If he can't do it, no one can. You know, I mean, nothing like that. Because the king was good to him and the king granted everything to him, he says it was because the good hand of my God was on me. So you're going through your little life and something good happens. Is that happenstance? Is that chance? Is that luck? Is that... Is that just a good fortune, the way that good fortune comes into the life of everybody? Everybody has to have a little rain in their life and a little good fortune. It's the way people think. If something good happens to you, that's God. That's God being good to you, I would also add, by the way, that when bad things happen to you, that's God. It's God who is in charge of the things that occur in your life. I like that Nehemiah, as soon as the good things happened, wrote it down, gave God all the credit, and said, the good hand of my God was on me. That's why the king gave me all this. So then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So he didn't just allow me to go. He sent an army with me, a bunch of armed people on horseback to protect me 
so that thieves and robbers couldn't fall on me along the way. I'm completely protected till I get to Jerusalem, and I've got letters in my hand from the king. And when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, official, heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Because don't forget, they had stopped the work. They had managed to stop the work. They had managed to so scare the Israelites that the Israelites quit building the temple. And then they finally get the temple rebuilt after the prophets come. And the prophets say, we don't care. This is the word of God. It's the work of God. We're going to rebuild this temple anyway. And then they finish the temple. And then the walls lay broken down and burned. So the surrounding nations think, well, that's great. The walls aren't being built. We can attack them anytime. Then suddenly there's this guy coming from the king with letters from the king with armed guards. And he's heading back to Jerusalem to do something positive for Jerusalem. Now, they don't seem to know what. But the next thing we're going to read is that he had to go out and inspect the walls secretly at night. He knew what his plan was. He knew what was up. But he didn't want them to know yet because he knew there was going to be immediate opposition, which is why he took the time to tell us that it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem, and I was there for three days before he even got up at night. Verse 12 says, and I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me except for the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well, and onto the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates had been consumed by fire. And then I passed on to the fountain gate and then to the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount or my animal to pass through. So I went up at night by the ravine and I inspected the wall. What that means is the stones of the wall were so broken down on the ground. Everything had so come down that in the inspecting of the wall, it reached the point where even the animal he was riding couldn't walk through and over and around the rocks. It was that destroyed. So he gets up and continues walking and inspecting. I went up at night by the ravine and I inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and then I returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officers, or the rest who did the work. And then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned with fire. So come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. In other words, so that our reputation is no longer bad among the surrounding cities, nations, because they all have walled cities, but our wall doesn't exist, which means anybody can attack us at any time. So we're a reproach among the nations, so let's rebuild the wall. Verse 18 says, and I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me, and then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But 
when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, they were officials, and when Geshem the Arab, they all heard it, they mocked us and they despised us. And they said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion, no right, and no memorial in Jerusalem. So there, we got through the first two chapters of Nehemiah. We got one chapter into Zechariah tonight. Do you see how the two fit together? Mm -hmm. I hope that I showed you the connections there, but I also hope that you see that the inspiration among the Jews, not only to rebuild the temple, but now to rebuild the walls, all comes from the fact that God's with them. It, across the board, every part of it, the emphasis is always on God's with you, now do the work. God's with you, now get up and go. And I think, again, we can even apply that to our lives. If we know that God's with us, well, then get up and do the work. If God's with us, then get up and go. We have no excuse to just sit still, rest on our laurels, and think, well, God's with us, so I don't have to do anything. We don't have to defend ourselves against our enemies. The enemies are out there, and they're always going to be out there. God protects his own people. Our job is to do the things that he has put in front of us, the works that he has ordained for us to do, because after all, our God is for us. That, to me, is the personalized lesson. The historic lesson is Jerusalem gets rebuilt. Why? Because God said so. And because God said so, even though there are enemies who oppose the building, it's going to get built anyway. Because nobody can oppose God. Okay? Okay. Got all that? Yes, sir. Questions about that? Yes, sir. Do you see a parallel? A parallel uh... Oh, good. I'm glad to know it's not only me that can't talk tonight. So that's good. So. Yeah, there is a parallel to be had, especially in the fact that Zechariah, who is inspiring the rebuilding of the temple, keeps jumping eschatologically to the end. And so much of Zechariah is repeated and referred to in the book of Revelation that there are real obvious connections and parallels. I'm not, well, you know I'm not a date setter, and you know that I'm not going to speculate, but based on what we're seeing in the world system right now, the world geopolitics, the way things are going, um, we're certainly in the birth pangs period, but how long that's going to go on, I have no idea. As a young man, I didn't think it would go on this long. And in fact, as a young man, I kept thinking, how much worse can it get? Stupid me, it got a lot worse. So I don't know how much worse it can get from here, but apparently it can still get worse. Did that answer your question? I managed to answer that by circumlocuting it and never really landing anywhere. So that was my plan. My other plan was to use the word circumlocuting. So anything else? Yes? So... It seems to me that in 
Bible times in many of the major civilizations. Cupbearer was not just the person who tasted the wine. It was a high office. Oh, yeah. Maybe chief of security. So it wasn't just, uh, now he says he brought the wine to the king. So he did, obviously. But I suspect this was not a menial position. Important position. A very trusted guy, and so because he was there in the king's councils, he was qualified to be the governor mm -hmm. of Judea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Because the king knew that he was loyal to the king. Yes. He was willing to lay his life down. Yeah, he proves it daily. Every time the king's thirsty, he put his life on the line. Somebody Anything in a menial position would have never been able to make requests like that. Somebody in a menial position couldn't get in front of the king to start with. And remember what Esther said. She was with the king just before Artaxerxes. And she said, if I walk in and make a request and he didn't invite me in, I'm dead. That's the, that's the law of the Medes and the Persians, is that I can't just go into his presence. So the very fact that Nehemiah was set up politically where he could get to the king is just providence. That's amazing. Anything else? No, we're good. All right, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.